Welcome back to the Energy Today podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Roos, and let's get into it. So first, I want to take a look at what um, has been going on in oil prices over the past week, and then uh, take a look at some developments with pipelines coming out of the Permian Basin, um, which is over there in West Texas and New Mexico. So first off, WTI, West Texas Intermediate, the oil price gauge that I always talk about on the show. It's also the U.S. oil price gauge. Um, And just to note, there's many of these. Um, There's one over in the U.K. called Brent. It's generally the world gauge of crude. Um, And there's also one out over in the Middle East. There's a ton of them all over the place. So WTI is currently sitting at $63 per barrel. And has actually increased by a few dollars since the last episode on Sunday. Um, and I was talking to a friend last week. Um, we we're going back and forth on where we thought oil prices were heading. He's investing in a ETF that tracks oil prices. So it goes up. He makes money and down, you know, the other way. <laughs> um, and we we're going back and forth. And it really came down to this, the thinking of your guess is really as good as mine. Um, all you can do is take in all the information that you can that you believe drives oil prices. And there's so many, so many variables to what can impact prices. I mean, right now, it's all around OPEC, COVID, demand, recounts, all of those things, uh, and many, many other things. Um, but it's also what oil market participants do, and not least OPEC. And Like I always talk about OPEC on the show, OPEC has continued to sort of flip-flop on where they're at as far as their demand outlook goes. Initially, uh, earlier this month, they were not going to increase production, and then they did increase production, and now we have commentary coming out of Russia, which is a pretty big part of OPEC+, Um, and then... um, and then Saudi Arabia, the oil minister, kind of saying, hey, you know, we're still going to wait and see. So it's just interesting. I mean, they're rolling back the cuts. Um, they're increasing production, putting more supply on the market, which might weigh on prices. But also, I mean, we if we see the slightest inkling of oil demand softening or COVID, you know, getting worse. I mean, we saw the news this week with the J&J vaccine and how basically it's banned worldwide now. And as to the extent of how much that affects the vaccine rollout, um, it, I guess we'll, we'll wait to see. Um, but they're basically the same thing, thinking about how COVID is going to roll back at some point and then also how the economy will return. They kind of move hand in hand, and those are really what's focusing around where oil prices are heading. And the consensus at the moment is we're moving out of the pandemic. Oil demand's returning. Economic activity will pick up. Retail sales for, I believe, the month of March uh, um, hit a new high. Um, so that's obviously a good thing as people start to spend more money. But again, that's all it is. is It's a consensus. I mean, the oil market is incredibly volatile and it won't take much for oil prices to move. Um, and even for OPEC to reverse its its uh, recent rollbacks or increases in production. And they have a meeting, I believe it's April 28th, um, and many including myself, would be curious on on what comes out of that. And the issue that I want to talk about for a minute is that OPEC has to project uniformity or 
consensus among them. I mean, we saw back in April of 2020 with the price war between Russia and OPEC and uh, Saudi Arabia, the basically the leader of OPEC, happened and how bad that looked for OPEC and the oil market in general. So them going back and forth could cause some people to maybe not consider them as a stable union or, or unified body as they once were. And I think that whenever they consensus had a consensus on um, bringing back production on the market, that looked good for them. Uh, and it looked good for, for the oil market in general, but it, it'll be really interesting to see. Um, and for those that don't know, OPEC is this coalition, some call it a cartel, of a bunch of different countries ranging from Saudi Arabia to Venezuela and Iran and Libya and Russia. There's, there's many, many countries, but what they really do um, is it comprises the bulk of major oil producing nations and they're trying to influence prices for their own country's economies because most of those countries that are in OPEC are very reliant on where the oil price is at. So just thinking through that, the, they want the price to go up so that way they can sell more oil at better prices and then also um, fund their economy, right? I mean, uh, Saudi Arabia raised prices on Asian countries, which are one of the biggest buyers of, of um, OPEC crude by 40 cents, which, you know, like I touched on last episode, multiply that across millions of barrels, adds up pretty fast. So all of that was standing, uh, a little bit of a sidebar there, but I want to talk about some of the gauges I traditionally talk about on the show um, such as inventories, uh, rig counts, and even some bankruptcy bankruptcies happening in the U.S. oil industry. So the Baker Hughes rig count, and, and for those that don't know, um, this is a really watched monitor gauge, whatever you want to call it, and Baker Hughes, the oil field services company, um, great company, uh, puts this out, I believe, every week. So in that report, there was actually an increase of seven rigs from the prior week. Uh, and that's around 439 active rigs here in the U.S. and actually down 90 from uh, a year ago. And again, a year ago, April of 2020 was uh, not a good month for anybody and definitely not a good month for the energy space. Um, so again, you know, still down 90 from from a year ago, but down 90 then. But what about whenever back in early March, February, whenever things were still looking kind of rosy for the economy. So almost all of that increase did come out of uh, Texas. So pretty much the Permian and whenever you think of it, I mean, the Permian's out in, in New Mexico um, and West Texas. Uh, and it's interesting because the week before there wasn't any change uh, for Texas. So don't necessarily know why the change, but the story remains here is that we're continuing to see rig counts go up and up and up. And I don't blame anybody for, for doing that. I mean, these co companies are struggling right now all over the U.S. and the world. And if you can drill and, and get this $63 per barrel price range, I mean, that's it's not, a, not a terrible idea. Um, and now I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about what's going on in inventories. Um, so in effect, inventories reflect the supply side of the equation, right? So we have inventories go up, not as good for oil prices in the oil market. Um, 
because now there's there's more supply, less demand, more less uh, room to sell uh, crude. So for the weekend of April 9th, 2021, U.S. inventories, um, again, these oil sitting in tanks, storage facilities, all of those things are waiting to be sold um, and put onto the market. And that actually decreased by 5.9 million barrels from the week before. So this is pretty bullish, good news for the market and accounts for some of the increase in, in the price of WTI. And as a collective, that number is sitting at 492 million barrels of U.S. crude oil, um, which is right around the like the one percent above the five-year average for this general time period. So this is certainly good news. Um, it's never a positive thing to see big jumps, big declines in those numbers. Um, markets in the oil market specifically like stability. Um, so if, for example, we saw a huge run up in, in inventories like we saw last March, April, May of 2020, pretty bearish news, pretty bad news for oil prices again, because where is that going to, that, that crude has to come out at some point. We have to sell that at some point. And if they're not getting good prices, um, things are just continue to get hammered on, on the oil price side of things. So now I wanted to shift gears again and touch on something not directly related to prices but does affect the industry as a whole and certainly the supply demand aspect of the oil market so looking at some recent bankruptcies which i haven't done in the show and i'm kind of wanted to bring up um there was a lot last year let's just get that out of the way there was a lot last year um and it's been interesting to see the companies that are continuing to go into bankruptcy and one point to note here is that it was really a size thing. Um, the companies that came into the pandemic with strong balance sheets, so didn't owe a lot of money, had good assets, had good cash flow, all of those things pretty much fared well. And they generally have better access to to capital markets too, to raise money and all of those things. And again, at the end of the day, you can have all these businesses and all of these things, but you have bills to pay, right? Like you have people to pay, creditors to pay, suppliers to pay, all of those things. And drilling for oil and gas is a really capital intensive environment to be in. So whenever oil prices go negative or the price is $16 per barrel, I mean, no one is breaking even at that price, especially in the U.S. So back to the bankruptcies for the quarter ended March 31st, 2021 quarter is three months. Um, we had eight eight oil and gas producers uh, file for bankruptcy here in the U.S. And this is actually the highest number for the first quarter, so Q1, um, since 2016, uh, which is interesting. Um, Again, Q1 of 2020 ended March 31st. I mean, the world changed a lot during that month of March, but some companies were still kind of maybe working through what that bankruptcy process would look like. Um, and actually, four out of those eight bankruptcies came from Texas. So again, there's a couple of oil fields in, in the Texas. Um, you have the Eagle for, Eagleford, um, you have Permian, and and there's one more. But again, generally, whenever you think of Texas oil and gas, it's generally what you think of Permian out in Midland, Odessa area. So yeah, four four out of those eight came there came from Texas. And these aren't necessarily massive bankruptcies. I mean, they're not going to make the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Um, and actually, the total debt load of these companies were was $1.8 billion, which, 
again, from a college student's perspective, that's a ton of money, <laughs> literally. But um, still from a company and industry-wide basis, that's not that much. Um, and also looking at some bankruptcies in the oil field services space. So oil field services, um, they're the companies that, like a Baker Hughes, like a Halliburton or a Schlumberger, um, some of the big name ones, those are the companies that go and help uh, the ENP exploration production, the upstream companies drill for uh, oil and gas. So they're there. They might, you know, take measurements, do all these things, drill for them, operate it, whatever they want to do. Um, so they really are dependent on those on upstream companies um, like a ConocoPhillips to go drill, um, and they help them out with it. And that's how they make their money. They make they make their money off of those companies drilling and, and giving them giving them money in return for that. So there was actually five OFS oil field services companies that filed for bankruptcy. Um, and according to this article, I'll drop it in the show notes. It's on oilprice.com. Um, this is actually the third highest number for OFS companies since the Q1 of 2015. Um, and some details of, of these bankruptcies, the total debt load here was much bigger than the upstream oil and gas producers and it was sitting at $7 billion, which again, ton of money. Um, but actually, one of the companies uh, represented almost all of the $7 billion in debt, which is kind of interesting. Um, but the story here and why I bring this up is that we're seeing a shakeout period as we kind of get into the back half of the pandemic. We're seeing the strong survive um, and and the companies with higher debt loads, debt burdens, maybe not as good of operations, kind of shake out and fall by the wayside. And this is definitely capitalism. I mean, it's how it works. Um, we have seen companies that aren't going to make it out. Um, but on the flip side of this, it'll lead to the better, stronger, more consolidated companies coming out of that, which will bode well not only for those companies and shareholders, but also consumers like you and me. Um, I believe that it should lower ultimate prices that we'll end up paying at the end of the day. Um, and again, these bankruptcies aren't necessarily massive in either size or scope, especially compared to last year when the pandemic hit. But something to keep in mind, um, especially because these aren't massive bankruptcies, you're not really going to hear about them wherever you get your news, Twitter, New York Times, Wall Street Journal. Um, but here in Texas, the oil and gas industry accounts for around 15% of the economy. So seeing bankruptcies obviously isn't a good thing, um, but there's always light at the end of the tunnel with really anything. Um, and the light here is that more consolidation, this kind of shakeup period and coming out the back half in better shape. So next I want to uh, take a look at again on the Permian Basin. Um, I know I talk about it a lot, but it's an incredibly interesting and really uh, important spot, especially in the U.S. industry, oil industry. Um, And this article that I found on oilprice.com actually refers to a, quote, crisis in the Permian Basin, uh, referring to pipeline capacity. I mean, crisis uh, is a stretch, especially whenever we, you know, turn on the news and you see a new crisis every day. Um, So... There's a ton of pipeline capacity out in the Permian. So pipeline capacity, it's it's the companies like an enterprise, um, enterprise products, great company out of Houston. Um, and they basically transport and maybe process the crude or gas, whatever they're transporting 
down to the refineries, um, such as on the Gulf Coast. Um, and pipelines, like I've mentioned, like the Keystone Pipeline, uh, probably five or six episodes ago now, are the safest way to transport petroleum products. Um, and obviously, I thought it was a shame to see the Keystone Pipeline canceled. Um, conversation for a different day. I've already talked about it, so I won't I won't uh, beat a dead horse. But yeah, so Permian Basin over past 10 years or so, I've seen an incredible run up in production. I mean, the shale boom, which what shale is, it's really dense rock. Um, people used to think, oil and gas companies used to think that there was no oil and gas in it, but they were able to use horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. Um, if you don't know what those are, I'd encourage you to look it up because they can, you know, online can explain it way better than I can. Um, but because of those things and because they were able to horizontally drill through these really, sometimes really thin shale layers and then using fracking, which basically blows holes in those rocks and when the pours and lets and shoots water and all those things and it lets the, the crude flow out from there. Um, and because of that happening, there was a ton of, of drilling out in the Permian Basin and midstream companies, so oil or pipeline companies that transport the crude, kind of like the middleman between the refineries and the people at the well. So just kind of think about that or like even think about like the the drive from Dallas to Texas. You have like or Dallas to uh, not Dallas to Texas, uh, Dallas to Houston, right? Like so like Dallas, you have. The oil and gas drillers are drilling up there. You have the highway, which could be the midstream companies transporting you down to Houston, which would be where their refineries are, where they process the crude and and ultimately um, sell it to consumers like you and I. So whenever this happened over in the Permian, pipeline companies, infrastructure, they rushed out there to be sure they were ready to use all of the oil that they could um, all the oil that was being produced to transport it and, and make that make make their money. It's like a toll road. They make their money off of crude passing through and having filled pipelines is always a good thing. So in this article, it talks about U.S. crude production peaking at 13 million barrels per day. Um, and current production, just for reference, is sitting around 11 million barrels per day. Um, so obviously less crude to transport. And there's many debates on whether we'll peak at production again or peak demand, all of those things. I firmly believe that we're not quite there yet. I think there's kind of a little bit of ways to go, especially as we're going to need a lot of crude and oil and, and all these things to make it into the energy transition, um, especially because traditional oil and gas companies are going to be the ones that are going to be leading the energy transition. They are the most efficient, smartest people in the energy space and they're not just going to roll over and be like okay you know this is this we had a good run i'm not gonna i'm not gonna try and change and adapt and make money um and all of those things so anyways um yeah so there was less crude there's less cut on a tangent there but there's less crude to transport in those pipelines and again whenever demand hit the floor during the pandemic um that was pretty awful especially for those for those companies, um, the pipeline companies. So combining that with less production happening right now with the nature of many oil and gas rigs, right? They're extremely short life cycles. I don't have, I don't know a specific number, but I think it, it's really high production initially, maybe one, maybe two years, and then it drops off considerably from there. And there's really high costs associated with drilling these wells, especially using hydraulic fracturing 
um, and horizontal drilling. So really expensive things, very like technical, actually really fascinating things. Um, but with really high cost and then a really drop off in production, a really quick drop off in production, upstream companies, so the ones drilling the wells and, and you know making their money that way and selling it to other people, they need to continue to drill more and more wells to recoup their investment faster. Um, and that, again, is kind of touching back on this last decade where there's a, tons of production happening, more and more wells were getting drilled. I'm not sure what the rig count was at the time, but I'm sure it was really high. Um, so anyways, fast forward to now, um, oil prices touching negative territory. Things are just not looking as hot. Um, certainly getting much better than they were a year ago, and I'm still really optimistic on this space. And, and I wanted to explain where how oil prices touch negative territory. So it's hard to, at least for me, to wrap my mind around the, the thought of paying paying somebody to t- like give give them something and pay them to to give it to them. Like it's it's, it's pretty backwards thinking, right? So. Oil prices, whenever I'm talking about WTI, the West Texas Intermediate, it's actually a futures contract um, for the next month. So what happened was, is that generally people either, whether they're trading this contract to make money or they're actually going to take delivery of the crude um, back in April. Well, again, with prices going down and down and down, nobody wanted to actually take delivery of this crude. Pipelines are filling up. Tankers were sitting in the Gulf and, and off the coast of California, everywhere, um, just filled to the brim. Cushing out in Oklahoma, main storage hub here in the U.S., was was filling up as re- really quickly. So those those investors, whatever you want to call them, holding those contracts, really just did not want to take delivery of it. So they were trying to really get any price that they could. And ultimately, it came to the point where they're like, hey, I literally cannot take this. And they were willing to pay somebody to take it from them. Um, so that's kind of, in as, as layman terms as possible, how oil prices actually touched negative territory. And they were there pretty briefly, but really a, a historic moment nonetheless. So the point of me bringing this all up is that with the oil and gas market, really with anything, there's, there's bad times and there's good times, right? So... For pipeline companies, this is not a great time um, currently, um, but many are projecting a full oil demand recovery in 2022. And again, you're like, okay, well, that's next year, but companies have people to pay now, right? It's, you can't, you know, when someone gets paid every two weeks, you can't, okay, hey, I'll hit you up in 2022, right? So with that happening in 2022, if it happens, I imagine so. Um, production will continue to move in lockstep because, again, more demand coming on. People are okay. Let's sell. Let's start. Let's start drilling more. Let's make some more money, uh, and more money is going to be made. Going to be made for those drillers, and more money to be made from those drillers. The more money everyone else in the rest of the supply chain is going to make. I mean, it really starts at the wellhead. People, if upstream companies are drilling more. OFS, oil field services companies, are going to get more business, right? They're going to hire more people, all of those things, good for the economy nonetheless. Um, but then if they're drilling more, well, it has to go somewhere. They can't just put it on the ground out there, right? So now they have midstream companies, the ones transporting them are going to make more money there. Um, and then again, you know, at the refineries, people are going to be set buying more things because there's more things on the market. People are likely making more money because now they have a job with the oil gas company, you know, whatever that case may be. 
But I want to read a quote real quick from the article that I'm referencing um, and just kind of details it better than honestly better than I could. So it goes, quote, in fact, nearly half of all oil pipelines leading out of the Permian Basin are projected to run completely dry by the end of 2021. Um, By the fourth quarter, total utilization of the largest oil pipelines from the Permian is is expected to drop to 57%. so utilization, right? Like how much of our capacity is being used and it's expected to go to 57%, which again, I mean, these, these pipelines aren't, you know, buying a snicker bar at the gas station, right? Like the millions, if not billions of dollars of projects, especially if they're connecting really, really far distances. And you compare that to the last oil market bust back in 2016, far before I was even following what's going on. So I couldn't necessarily explain why that happened. Um, but utilization rates were sitting at 70%. And again, they weren't facing a pandemic or any of those things. But still, not a good picture. And again, I mean, projections are just projections, right? I mean, back in March, April, it was a scary time, right? I thought, personally, I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about GDP shrinking by this insane number and talking about the effects of that and how many people go hungry and die and all these things and i was like man this is this isn't a joke um but still i mean you can be bearish and you can be bullish on pipelines but i think things are going to work out for the best at the end of the day and again thinking through esg environmental social governance kind of the the green energy new energy you know green economy whatever you want to call it push um, these pipelines don't have to just carry oil, right? I mean, they can carry so many different things in those pipelines, whatever it may be, hydrogen, whatever you want to call it. Um, but a lot of the pipeline in the Permian, and it's pretty far from a major city, so it'll be interesting to see how these pipeline companies can kind of adapt to this and maybe be a new inroad into maybe a new business line. Maybe they can partner with some startup and now they can transport fuel sources for them and bring those to market easier because the infrastructure is there. We just have to figure out how to make it work for the new new age, whatever you want to call it. And again, I always like to outline my view um, of the future of the oil and gas market. And it, it's pretty simple to me. I, I be- firmly believe that there's a spot for both traditional oil and gas and renewables in the future. I believe that renewables, at least in my lifetime, will never fully replace, never fully replace traditional oil and gas. Because, I mean, you think about how many things oil and gas and byproducts of those are in. I mean, paints, polymers, candles, um, rubber, obviously oil and gas, the products you use, all those things, the, the plastic on your phone, your, your steering wheel, the, you know, so many different things. Um, not even to mention like the chemicals that are used in other things and you have propane and all those things, butane. Um, but anyways, I, I'm still optimistic on the space and I feel that it certainly has a future. And I know that a lot of college students are really hesitant about going into the oil and gas space. Um, but I personally think, well, yeah, you have risk of oil price going up and down. And that's why I always talk about it at the beginning of the show, kind of let people know what, where things are at. Yes, you do have that risk, but 
this is where the action is going to be. It's not like the energy transition is happening like outside of the oil and gas industry. They're not, like I mentioned earlier, they're not trying to roll over and do that. So the most exciting things, in my opinion, are that are going to happen in the oil and gas space are going to happen over the next 10 years. And that's why I think it's a great spot to be in, especially right out of college, because you can you can really do anything after college and your career will ultimately be fine. Um, but again, another another sidebar, this episode is a little bit longer, but I, I do um, appreciate you listening. And that's really all that I have today on the Energy Today podcast. I, I touched on something a little bit different talking about pipelines. Um, I personally like to talk about things that I just don't necessarily know a lot about because one, it makes me kind of explain it a little bit better. Um, and then two, I mean, if, if I'm following the space and I don't really know much about it, then I'm hoping that those listening also don't know much about it. So that way, you know, we can all, we can all learn together. So I will drop all of the reference articles that I talked about in the show notes and encourage you to really to read into them a little bit. I mean, these people that write these articles are world-class, um, commentators on the space i mean i'm getting there right (laughs) but they're definitely already there so anyways i'm your host jackson roos thank you again for tuning in and i'll see you next week